This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Thomas Halliday. Thomas is a Scottish paleobiologist and he joined me to discuss his debut book, Otherlands, A World in the Making. Thomas takes us on a journey into deep time and introduces us to the awe-inducing ecosystems, animals, plants and places that existed from Alaska during the Pleistocene 20,000 years ago to Australia during the Ediacaran 550 million years ago. You'll hear about Antarctica's temperate rainforests, sea-travelling monkeys and giant penguins, among many other wonders. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program for the very first time Thomas Halliday, Thomas is a paleobiologist. He is an honorary research fellow at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And he is the author of a brand new book called Other Lands, A World in the Making. And it's been published here in Australia through Alan Lane, which is an imprint of Penguin. We are going to be taking ourselves back into very deep time to millions upon millions of years ago. But At the beginning of this chat, we will start off in somewhat familiar landscapes about 20,000 years ago. So I welcome Thomas onto the program. Hi there, Thomas, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Hello, thank you for having me. It's really lovely to speak. And uh, before we jump into the first chapter in Alaska, I wanted to go back a little bit to where this book has come from and what it's looking to achieve. So first of all, Obviously, you are a paleobiologist. Some people may not be familiar with that kind of job, but they may think of things like dinosaurs, for example. That may be something that springs to mind. But what was it that took you on a life journey, really, to become a paleobiologist and to decide that this was a field you wanted to work in and then write a highly detailed, um, very imaginative book about? (laughs) Yeah, I think I fell into um, paleontology and paleobiology slightly by accident, really. Um, I had lectures uh, on that subject in my third year of my undergraduate. And before that, I'd gone to university thinking that maybe I would want to do genetics and that kind of thing. I was always inter- in- interested in the big picture evolutionary stories rather than the sort of the nitty gritty of biochemistry and that kind of thing. And then genetics turned out to be far more sort of molecular <laughs> than, than I was really happy with continuing with. So, um, yeah, my, my, my third year was uh, 50% ecology and 50% paleobiology. And so I think that's really where this kind of book comes from, because in many ways, it's not just a paleobiological book, it's an ecological book, right? Most of the time when people think about paleobiology, paleontology, they'll Think about dinosaur skeletons, as you say, sort of mounted in a museum, uh, which are, you know, all well and good. But uh, quite often, unless you sort of go in um, and, and sort of read all of the displays, it's sort of lacking the context, right? You've got this single animal usually separated from the world in which it lived. But of course, it was alive. It did do all of the things that animals today do. It, it, it fed and it mated and it played and it slept and it did all of the things that we expect and interacted with its environment. It lived in a world where there were other organisms, other plants, other animals, microorganisms, where climates varied and um, the chemistry of the soil and the water and the air was different throughout Earth history. So what Otherlands does is it takes 
a holistic view of a series of 16 sites through the last 550 million years of Earth history back to the dawn of um, complex ecosystems. And I, I really wanted to sort of present this ecological view of the past to kind of get away from the the strange distance that you feel when you're just looking at a single skeleton. Yeah, no, there is a very strange distance. Uh, And you clearly are one of those unique scientists, perhaps, who can communicate so well, but also in a literary fashion, really, because this book is very literary and scientific. It gives great descriptors and it really does transport you to these different ecologies and how they felt and how they looked and the kind of character that they had. And obviously it um, gives us this strong grounding in facts, but it also does give you a very easy bridge to another land. So I also wonder where that creativity and imagination comes from. Oh, well, firstly, thank you. That's very nice things to say. Um, (laughs) um, I think part of it is that, so I, I like to read uh, nature writing and you know the, the the sort of books like Robert McFarlane writes, for example, um, where he's sort of very interested in the human response to the place and to the landscape. And it it sort of struck me one day that it was not really an approach that had been applied to the past. But I think it, the reason that I wanted to do it like this is because it's all very well you know, listing facts and figures about organisms that used to exist, but it's not really what people actually respond to in reality. And if you want to show that this is a real sort of landscape, a real place that you could have gone to where you were around at the time, you have to feel like you're there. And so, yeah, every every factual statement within the book has a paper behind it. And so some ideas are a bit more controversial than others. Some ideas are a little bit more tenuous than others, but there is, you know, there's evidence behind the factual statements. It's my response to the past, right? It's mm. a personal interpretation of what how I would feel in these places, I guess. But I, I hope that in doing that, it becomes sort of immersive and you get the emotional, the sensational quality sent in the sense of eyes and ears um, <laughs> you know quality of uh, uh, of these um, landscapes and indeed you know seascapes because uh, beyond a certain point of time point in time going backwards everything is underwater again so you know you have to draw on my own experiences from visiting uh, you know various forests around the world the various ecosystems around the world and you know i have in the past gone diving not for a good 10 years or so but you know drawing on my impression of what it is like to be in a reef ecosystem. You can sort of apply some of these to the, to uh, past reef ecosystems. Yeah. Reefs are in the news at the moment with the Great Barrier Reef having another mass bleaching event. Right. Yeah. So we are very concerned here in Australia about the Great Barrier Reef. And you do even mention the Great Barrier Reef in your introduction. And something might be surprising to people is that you say today's reefs may be coral, but in the past, clam-like mollusks, shelly, brachiopods, and even sponges have been reef builders. Corals only took over as the dominant reef building organisms when the mollusk reefs succumbed to the last mass extinction. And I think the point that you make there is what comes out throughout the book. You're pointing out here that these processes happen all the time across millions upon millions of years and we're only dealing with our tiny little piece of history that we remember that we're thinking about or conscious of but in Mm -hmm. fact things were drastically different and different things might have become extinct but new things formed in their place. 
Yes. So I, w- I would say that mass extinctions certainly are catastrophic events. Mm. And I'm certainly not going to counter that. But uh, to the sort of the, the, the main bulk of, uh, of your point there, that ecosystems change over time, that it's absolutely true. I mean, a lot, a lot of the time you see the same kinds of patterns emerging, similar roles appearing in an ecosystem. So that's kind of what this discussion of reef systems is, is all about. The, the reef building provides uh, habitats and complex environments which supports a great diversity of life and that is true whatever the organism is that is doing the reef building. Now it happens that right now its corals are the main reef builders and they have been building reefs you know since the Jurassic and before but just in different proportions you know so the the, the mollusk reefs were dominant uh, by the end of the Cretaceous and then after that we um, move into a more coral reef dominated ecosystem. But yes, mass extinctions do cause big turnovers. And of course, the coral reefs are part of our time. So it, it is all very well saying, you know, life will go on. And of course, after a mass extinction, life does go on and diversify. But it's not the life of our time, right? So looking back at all of these uh, 16 other lands, these 16 other worlds, we can see that Although life itself is persistent, the individual ecosystems and the organisms that make them up can be very fragile. I want to jump into the first chapter because it gives us a sense that there is some commonality between our time and this time that you're taking us to. The Pleistocene 20,000 years ago, which you've titled the chapter as the Thor Northern Plain Alaska in the US, the United States of America, and you're describing this particular world and you say that in winter there is little to eat the ground is four fifths bare earth one fifth dry brown stalks and what meager food there is is coated with abrasive dust even so the desiccated remains of the summer's plenty are enough to support several small herds of short-legged horses first of all Anyone who kind of is familiar with Alaska wouldn't necessarily think of that uh, ecology or environment associating that with Alaska. So although it's 20,000 years ago, a lot clearly has changed, but there still are some things like horses. Uh, yes, uh, Alaska at that time. I mean, so the, the, this scene is set on the north slope of um, uh, the Brooks Range, which is a, a sort of east-west mountain range uh, towards the north of Alaska. Um, and specifically, it's on the edge of a sand dune sea, right? So you don't really expect like rolling sand dunes as being a, an Alaskan environment. But at this time, a lot of uh, water from the world's oceans was locked up in huge ice sheets. And so the sea levels were considerably lower. And um, the sort of patterns of uh, airflow meant that actually... Alaska is extremely dry at this time. So it was it was still very cold, but very dry. And so this is kind of a, a, an environment which really suits organisms like uh, like horses um, with their sort of you know, long limbs and hooves. They are sort of really well suited to long distance travel across wide ranging, relatively flat areas. And this part of Alaska and the Yukon is one end of the Mammoth Steppe, which is just an ecosystem that was at this time the biggest one in the world. It stretched all the way across Russia through northern Europe um, all the way to essentially to Ireland. And it uh, was the biggest contiguous biome on the planet and is now essentially gone. There are some patches left in Mongolia, which 
show some of the same kind of vegetation structure and some of the small mammals are still there, but it's missing the big herbivores like the mammoth itself. Uh, so this chapter is really showing how something, how fragile ecosystems can be and how you, we can go in actually an extremely short period of time from having uh, an ecosystem covering you know, a considerable portion of Eurasia and northwestern North America um, to being essentially absent. I was interested in the fact that you talk about the concept of an ecosystem being not a solid entity and that it's made up of hundreds and thousands of individual parts, each species with their own tolerance to heat, salt, water availability, acidity, and each with their own role. And you talk about a really kind of key concept here about something called a fundamental niche, which is the possible survivable conditions for any given species. Could you delve a bit more into that and what significance these concepts have for the book as a whole? Because they do seem to be critical to how we understand each ecosystem that you take us through. Right. And that's the other function of this chapter, really, is to introduce some of these really key terms. So a um, a, a fundamental niche, um, as you say, it, it, it's the sort of theoretical space in which an organism can exist. So we might think of, you know, a series of axes and one of them is um, temperature. So, you know, we as humans, I mean, I guess we're slightly different because we use technology to solve these limits, but we would have a, we have an upper limit of a temperature that we are not able to survive beyond and we have a lower limit that we're not able to survive beyond. And so if we were placed in an environment which uh, existed beyond these limits, uh, then we would die. And so a species cannot survive in an environment which uh, passes outside its tolerance. However, the fundamental niche is very, very rarely um, entirely occupied. I mean, practically never entirely occupied because you have other organisms complicating this, um, attempting to perform certain roles that maybe quite a good example is we have this small birds in Europe called titmice. And in Finland, there's been a wonderful study showing that when you have marsh tits and willow tits overlapping with one another, they restrict their diets so that the diets themselves don't overlap and they're not directly in competition. Whereas if there's only one of them, they will then completely sort of adopt the role that the the other species fulfills. So the realised niche is what sort of happens in actuality. But when you get climates changing, as we did at the um, you know through the Pleistocene, as as we left the last glacial maximum, uh, a lot of the, the the climates are then moving outside the fundamental niche, out with the fundamental niche of a lot of these species. And when that happens, then the species must either migrate to somewhere where that they can still occupy that niche, or are forced into extinction. And this is obviously relevant for what we're doing now. We are changing the climate. We are affecting those variables. And the species themselves, will their fundamental niches are not changing very quickly, right? This happens, especially um, creatures like us and like, you know, with long generational times, like elephants, for example, they're not going to be able to adapt to the rapid changes that um, we're thrusting upon them. And so if we change the climate such that it moves outside this fundamental niche, then that spells disaster for those creatures and always has. I mean, it's almost sort of a truism, really, saying that once you're outside your survivable conditions, you will not survive. (laughs) But um, it's it's a, a fundamental concept, really, within ecology is the niche. 
Yeah. One of the other things that it's come up in previous chats I've had are land bridges, which clearly were very critical to movement of animals and other types of organisms. And you say in this chapter that sea levels worldwide at this time are lower than those in the modern day by about 120 metres, which is quite mind-boggling. And so the growth of the ice exposed shallow seabeds building so-called land bridges between continents. And you talk about the Beringian land bridge that will be sunken by the sea. You say it's very vast and that it's essentially the mammoth steppe. Yes, so this is um, one uh, sort of sub-region of the Mammoth Steppe. So the Bering Straits today are that that patch of water between Alaska and uh, eastern Russia, called Chukotka. So during the last glacial maximum, this is relatively shallow sea, and all of this was exposed. It's an area which is, I I think I say in the book, the size of California and Oregon and and Utah and Washington all combined, right? It's, It's an enormous area of exposed bed. And because it was relatively low altitude compared with Chukotka and Alaska, um, it was um, often a little bit more sheltered. You'd get dwarf willows growing there. You'd get um, sage. You'd get all sorts of prairie-type environment within the Mammoth Steppe. But yes, these land bridges, I mean, it wasn't only there, of course. There were land bridges elsewhere in the world. I mean, Tasmania was connected to mainland Australia, right? No, uh, Papua New Guinea as well. That island was, uh, I think, connected to Australia too at that time. And when you get these uh, land bridges, you do get exchange of organisms between them. And we can still see the legacies of uh, of that today in the distributions of organisms. And in fact, Papua to the rest of Indonesia on the one side is, is um, quite a good example of this. The dividing line between the Australian type fauna in eastern Indonesia and the Asian type fauna in western Indonesia, it's known as the Wallace line. And it was this one of these sort of first described patterns of biogeography, as we call it, where you get these sort of regions of species that happen to sort of tend to coexist together. So, you know, there are echidnas in Papua, and whereas um, as, as soon as you get into the Western uh, Indonesia, you're getting great apes. And these uh, distributions have, have legacies that far outlast the ecosystems that they are a part of. Yeah. Thank you for some local context. It's uh, really interesting (laughs) because we always hear about how we're so mega diverse and special in Australia, or at least that's what comes up in a lot of the chats that I have. In the second chapter, you jump quite a bit further ahead um, and we move to the Pliocene four million years ago and you introduce some concepts like photosynthesis and also you talk about hominids and the first to walk and run exclusively on two legs. So could you share with us the significance of the Pliocene and what made it so different? And are they our ancestors, I guess is my question, because there are so many different types. But yeah, could you take us through some of this complexity? Yeah. So firstly, as to the ancestor question, paleontologists are generally very, very reluctant to say this was our ancestor, because the odds of actually having these species that gave rise to us 
or give gave rise to any modern lineage is relatively small, right? The proportion of organisms that fossilize is is very small, and the chances that that we then find them is makes it even smaller. But we can say that this is something that is certainly a very very close relative of our ancestors, and that we came out of the group that included all of these Australopithecines. So the most famous um, Australopithecus is uh, so called Lucy which is Australopithecus afarensis from the Afar depression in uh, sort of Ethiopia and um, down the Rift Valley in eastern Africa. But this chapter is set a little bit before Australopithecus afarensis um, to a species that we can actually say is ancestral to that species, Australopithecus anamensis, which means um, the Australopithecus from the lake. And the lake in question is uh, the lake that's now known as Turkana, that used to be known as Lake Rudolph in colonial times. It charts human evolution in so many ways. So the, 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 the Leakey family is a family of anthropologists who have sort of been leading the excavation of this area for decades and decades at this point, and generations of that family. And Australopithecus anamensis is the earliest species from this site, uh, Canapoi, which can be definitively said to be more closely related to humans than to chimpanzees. So there are a couple of other specimens that are uh, sort of around that divergence and people dispute whether they're, you know, more closely related to a last common ancestor or maybe on the chimpanzee side or maybe on our side, you know. So debates rage. But um, uh, Australopithecus anamensis is uh, the first uh, to be certainly human. And it was considerably smaller than than modern humans. And we're looking at something which was probably, you know, quite, quote, ape-like in appearance in terms of, you know, hair coverage and so on, and relative brain size. Um, but, you know, we know that they would have been sort of social animals. And, and, and importantly, in Canopoi, it's a sort of environment which is very mosaic. So you've got patches of grasses, lands, you've got patches of um, these gallery forests sort of snaking along rivers. You've got a lakeside. It's, it's a quilt of environments. And this is really important for the development of um, humans as or hominins as a sort of problem solving complex environment uh, inhabiting creature, right, that is sort of walking on two legs between these um, relatively forested areas. We know that Australopithecus was still climbing trees because of the, the, the stresses that we can observe in their bones. We can uh, infer quite a lot about their largely sort of vegetarian diet this time. And, you know, it's a very important period for human evolution. And East Africa is usually said to be like a cradle of humanity, but it's a cradle of so much more than that, because we also see the um, some of the earliest relatives of giraffes, of modern giraffes, and we see a huge diversity of the relatives of modern elephants, um, and among all sorts of other things, ancestors of antelopes and wildebeest. And they're all there, the sort of classic African animals, all sort of have their ancestors in Canopy you know, four million years ago. It's sort of, uh, it, it's almost the time when the modern world, as we see it, kind of comes into being. Mm. Okay, well... Let's go back a little bit more to the Miocene where something that, you know, is pretty surprising happened where the Mediterranean Sea was cut off from the Atlantic Ocean and essentially dried out. Could you take us through the Miocene, but particularly the the area that you're talking about in Italy uh, or what we now know as Italy? Yeah. Um, so th this is an event that happened right at the end of the, the Miocene, just as we're about to change into the Pliocene. And, um, you know, the continents of the world are, are floating on their tectonic plates, which 
which shift around, and Africa is progressively moving north towards Europe. And so at some point during the um, late Miocene, what is now the Straits of Gibraltar, um, got closed off by this northward movement. And so the Mediterranean became separated as a system of water from the Atlantic Ocean. And it so happens that there aren't actually that many rivers that flow directly into the Mediterranean, and it's quite a dry part of the world, and it's and it was back then too. So the, the rate of filling of the Nile and the Rhone was just not enough to counteract the evaporation of the Mediterranean Sea. And so over a period of um, several hundred years, it dried out. I mean, it, so it probably wasn't entirely dry at the bottom. There were probably some extremely salty pools, but we are talking about drying to the depths of several kilometers, making it probably the lowest altitude place that has ever existed. <laughs> right? This is an incredible um, drop relative to uh, you know, even the, the biggest depressions that exist today. And then... At the end of the Miocene, a, an earthquake in what is now Morocco, Spain, Straits of Gibraltar, known as a strike-slip earthquake, which is where the two plates are moving horizontally past each other. And as they sort of jutted it, the whole land dropped down enough to re-establish this connection with the Atlantic. And the Atlantic poured in like a sluice over a weir um, into the Western Mediterranean. And so the Western Mediterranean fills up, but Italy and um Malta and Sicily and so on, make a sort of a, a saddle of higher land within the Mediterranean Sea or, or higher seabed as it is now. And so this blocked the eastern Mediterranean from being filled until just outside what is now the city of Syracuse, Syracuse, the waters burst over in a waterfall which uh, was wider than Niagara, was one and a half times the uh, size of the uh, Angel Falls, which is the biggest waterfall to exist in the modern day, and carved out these enormous canyons that you can still see through, you know, sonar imaging of the seabed. So it must have been, you know, one of the most spectacular sites of all um, sort of geological history. And in fact, so this was the first chapter I wrote, kind of as a, as a response to a question that I get quite a lot, which is, you know, if you had a time machine, where would you go? And I think, you know, really, I would want to go and see the Zanklian flood, as we call it. Yeah. <laughs> because it just would have been an absolutely phenomenal sight. The desiccated Mediterranean being filled up at rates of a metre an hour. The amount of water pouring in, the sort of weight of the Atlantic Ocean just filling the Mediterranean Sea in its entirety over the course of about a year is a wonderful thing to imagine. But of course, life carried on in these high grounds. And so this, the, this, the main site of this chapter is, is what is uh, now known as the Gargano Peninsula, which is sort of near the heel of the Italian boot. It sort of sticks out into the Adriatic. Uh, but at that time, it had been uh, an island separated from Italy before the Mediterranean desiccated. And so it, it evolved these, as many islands do, uh, organisms that are either you say dwarfed or subject to island gigantism. So much uh, smaller creatures tend to get larger and um, big creatures tend to get smaller. Um, it's a sort of happy medium size for island life on uh, a place with restricted uh, nutrients, and restricted resources. And so we get these giant flightless geese and giant flightless barn owl relatives and you know, tiny deer. It's, it's, a, sort of, it's a wonderful... Um, environment of very sort of strangely proportioned creatures which um of course then uh, eventually is wiped out as the as the sea 
covers it again with this continual tectonic activity. Gargano was um, then briefly later under the sea and that fauna was lost forever until it has re-emerged as a, as, as a peninsula within Italy. Yeah, I loved that point that you made about island dwarfism and the fact that whenever species arrive on isolated land masses, the island rule of dwarfism and gigantism still applies. So it's, you know, even in other settings or other ecologies, this seems to happen. Why does it happen in an island or an isolated landmass? Well, there are, um, there's a bit of debate really over exactly why. So getting smaller for large creatures is maybe the easier one to, to explain, because if you're on an island with limited resources, then it doesn't make sense to be so enormous that you need a lot of food to, to sustain yourself and to sustain enough of a population to keep going. And so larger organisms tend to be become smaller. And there's also a sort of a, a, a common feature of islands because they tend to be a subsample of the, the species that are found on the nearby mainland, you often lack carnivores, um, or at least sort of major carnivores. So uh, that means that there's less of a pressure to be big. But if you are um, if you're small, you also have an issue on islands that uh, resources can be quite patchy and they can suddenly be in huge abundance, but then go through periods of substantial you know, famine or drought. And so if you are tiny and have an extremely short generation time, that is usually not very good for, for surviving. If you're able to have enough uh, resources or an, uh, an ability to survive for periods without feeding, without those resources, then you, you probably stand a better chance. But yeah, the exact reasons for this um, are, are, are still debated, but it is a pattern that we can observe it was first observed in 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 dinosaurs in in what is now Transylvania, right, where we found the the classic sauropod dinosaurs, long necks, long tails, Diplodocus type dinosaurs. They're among the largest that exist, but in this place called Hatzeg in um, what is now Romania, um, wonderful um, paleontologist called Franz Nopska um, found these dwarf sauropods, right, which were you know still large animals, considerably smaller than their close relatives alongside giant pterosaurs, right? So the, the winged, uh, enormous ashdarkid pterosaur, which was, um, yeah, bigger than any flying bird today, but which would itself have been able to fly. Wow. I want to jump into a couple of key concepts as well that you bring in after this in the Oligocene 32 million years ago, and you're looking at Chile, and you talk about the Earth being between two stable states, an ice house, where there is permanent ice at the poles and a greenhouse where that ice is absent. But I did want to ask about um, that concept and also when you bring in the monkeys that travel not seemingly by a land bridge but through some other travel mode. Um, And I wonder if you could tell that funny story. Yeah, so we are technically right now, a geologist would tell you that we are in an ice age. Right. The ice age has not ended. We're just in the interglacial period. So there is permanent ice at the poles. And were we not pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we would be cycling back and forwards between you know, extreme ice and less extreme ice. Right. And this is a result of um, changes in the shape of Earth's orbit, which are known as uh, Milankovic cycles. And this, this has a periodicity of a, you know, a few thousand years, tens of thousands of years. But at a sort of longer scale than this, we do tend to flip between ice house earth, which is what we are in at the moment and have been since the Oligocene, and a greenhouse earth, which is what we were in for tens of millions of years before that. 
So I think the last time we were in an ice house world before that was sometime in the Jurassic. And the reason that we switched in the Oligocene is really because of continental movement. So Antarctica was connected to South America. And you, if you look at a map today, you'll see the West Antarctic Peninsula kind of stretches out towards Patagonia. And there's this narrow passage, which is called the Drake Passage between them. And this opened up in the Oligocene. Well, in the Eocene, and it had effects which then sort of spiralled into the Oligocene. And one of those effects was to set up a, a current of water that goes around Antarctica called the Circumpolar Current, which doesn't hit any land mass along the way. And this sort of isolates the climatic system of Antarctica and, and tended towards cooling. And then once you'd started this uh, ice sheet formation in Antarctica, it sort of accelerated and became this runaway effect until we flipped to this other stable state that we find ourselves in for now. So, yeah, you know, the positions of the continents are, have been extremely important in sort of governing what happens at a global scale and therefore at a local scale. And um, it sort of links on quite nicely to the story of the monkeys, I suppose. So in South America today, monkeys are diverse and abundant, everything from howler monkeys to spider monkeys and so on. And all of these monkeys, though, have their ancestry in Africa. But they have somehow got from Africa to South America and then diversified. So for a long time, it was thought that because Africa and South America sort of neatly fit together, that maybe you had some sort of tectonic separation and that this had then caused them to evolve separately. But their common ancestor lived far more recently than, than this tectonic separation. And so we have to invoke some other way of getting them across. And for a long time, again, people suggested that actually there were somehow sunken land bridges, but there was no mechanism to explain exactly what those were or how they have disappeared and why there's no evidence of them. And so what we believe now is that from time to time in stormy weather on a big river, like, for example, the Congo, you get banks of vegetation, including trees that sort of hold together because of the roots of those trees and float off downstream. And they carry with them uh, the organisms that live there. And it seems that monkeys first got to South America through rafting on one of these uh, dislodged uh, banks of vegetation. Uh, but not only monkeys, all of the rodents in South America as well. So guinea pigs and capybaras and agoutis, all of these are and, you know, American porcupines. These are descended from rafting African rodents that uh, made it across the admittedly narrower than today, but still you know, substantial Atlantic Ocean. Um, and there are all sorts of these examples of species that have these transatlantic relationships from, you know, freshwater fish and salamanders as well, which is, those are the most mind boggling to me. I mean, the monkeys are sort of, people end up with a kind of charismatic impression of a seafaring monkey, just sort of, you know, <laughs> land ho, here we go. But the mind boggling ones to me are the ones where they rely on living in fresh water and how they're crossing an ocean and then diversifying on the other side. It's 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 a incredible statistic made i guess only really believable by the time spans that are involved here and that you know it only has to happen once and what's amazing is that it seems to have happened many times and in fact twice for primates because there are other monkeys that made it to south america but which have subsequently gone extinct and it seems to be an independent rafting event so um it's it's, it's one of those wonderful uh, stories of dispersal and how a, a non-native species can become a native species. And so we really have to, you know, you, you have to think about what native even means when we're, we're thinking on the, on the timescale of millions of years.
Well, you walked right into my next question. There was a really great line in the native or not question. I mean, it comes up here in Australia all the time because we do have very unique native animals, as you know, and our marsupials are particularly interesting and a lot of our birds. And you say that what is important in conserving an ecosystem is conserving the functions, the connections between organisms that form a complete interacting whole. In reality, species do move and the notion of native species is inevitably arbitrary, often tied into national identity. Could you delve a little bit more into that idea of native and non-native and obviously how we conceive of it today and how useful is the term native now? Well, I mean, I think it certainly does have its have its uh, uses. Some species are objectively invasive and bad, and they disrupt ecosystems by either putting a, a huge amount of pressure on the species that are already there, um, which uh, affects food chains and so on. So uh, it's cane toads in Australia, isn't it, that were particularly bad for a very long time, and perhaps still are. I'm not sure I'm aware of exactly what's happened <laughs> there. You know, so species like that, it is a good idea to stop them from spreading. But one of the examples in Britain which gets people extremely sort of emotional is um, with squirrels, right? So um, a, a century ago, the only squirrels really in, in the UK were the um, European red squirrel. And um, they are objectively adorable little animals. But in most of the country, including I live in North London, um, here you won't see a red squirrel at all. Um, they're told these grey squirrels, which are Carolina squirrels. So these are American squirrels. And it's often sort of framed as, you know, these greys coming here and destroying our native reds and so on. And th the language that people quite often use ends up being very reminiscent of nationalistic and um, sort of anti-immigration rhetoric. And there is a long history of conservationists and, and, and nature writers being closely allied to these really radical right-wing philosophies. I mean, um, Henry Williamson, the author of Tarka the Otter, was an ardent Nazi. It's the sort of an idea of some kind of purity and that this is how it was and therefore always should be that I want to argue against when I'm talking about what is a native species. And it is important because it does have practical implications. Native and um, invasive and non-native often have legal protection or legal definition. So in, in the US, a, a species is a native species if it existed there before 1492, so before Columbus landed in uh, the Americas. Whereas in Britain, a native species is anything that has been there continually since the last glacial maximum. Right. So, which, so obviously that's a completely different time frame. But also as the ice retreats, then species naturally move north because the climates are shifting. And so not all of the species that are present in the UK and deemed to be non-native, not all of them are dangerous. A lot of them have an extremely long history uh, of growing wild here and um, are extremely important for our ecosystem. So it is it, it does have a sort of a practical conservation aspect as well. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is to show that, yeah, the concept of native, we just have to be very careful about how we use it and how we relate it to political ideology, because it yeah, this idea of purity and what should be in a place is quite often applied and taken more generally and taken specifically for humans as well, which is obviously an inappropriate use. 
Thank you for um, sharing that nuance with us. I am going to jump into the Eocene and Antarctica because, I mean, it is pretty cool to think that Antarctica was a rainforest, really. You say that at the onset of the Eocene, the world warmed at a rate that was almost unprecedented, caused by high carbon dioxide and methane concentrations. That was just quite amazing to me, the idea that carbon dioxide levels were up to about 800 parts per million, which you say is more than twice that of the modern day and four times of the 19th century, which we know as being the Industrial Revolution period. So clearly this is a a really interesting chapter in many ways. Giant penguins is one of them, but also the temperature and what grows in Antarctica. Yeah, so this was uh, this is before we get this big switch into to ice house Earth. Antarctica, when ice was not present at the poles, it was covered in a temperate rainforest, um, or at least parts of it were covered in a temperate rainforest. The parts that we can access as paleontologists. There's a sort of rather morbid joke that maybe climate change isn't so bad because we'll actually get the data from the centre of the continent. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that is quite morbid. Yes. <laughs> but. Um, in uh, so the, the site that um, I look at here is called Seymour Island, and it's uh, it's it's just off the West Antarctic Peninsula. So it, it's very sort of far north. It's um, quite exposed. It's quite easy to access the rock record, and the rock record from this period of time, which is about fifty-five million years ago to about um, thirty-five million years ago, and in the Eocene we had this uh, temperate rainforest. And and that rainforest is to some extent still present today, just not in Antarctica, because this is part of a wider pan-Antarctic flora, um, which uh, is still found in parts of Australia and parts of New Zealand, and um, most of all in South America, um, in the Valdivian rainforest in, in what is now Chile. This is not a tropical rainforest, uh, incidentally. So when people think of rainforests, they usually think of the rainforests of you know, the Congo or the Amazon or Indonesia. And these are the, the hot rainforests of, of the tropics. But there are temperate rainforests as well. Um, you know, in Western Canada, um, the native ecosystem of Western Scotland and much of Ireland is, um, is a temperate rainforest of which only patches survive because we currently burn the heather on the mountains to promote grouse for shooting. But uh, rainforests are essentially characterised by having an extremely wet, rainy climate for most of the year. And so what you end up with is plants that are growing on other plants, um, these epiphytic plants, so lianas and ferns and, and mosses. And so it's a very dense, sort of impenetrable forest. And this is what you would have found on what is now Seymour Island um, in the Eocene. We know this is a, a coastal place. We have uh, evidence of this of this beach ecosystem and what I think is most people's sort of take-home animal from Seymour Island are the giant penguins, the early penguins. The largest specimen is estimated at about two metres tall, which is... <laughs> Amazing, yes. like basketball playing penguins. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, these are still relatively stocky birds looking at about 120 kilos, right? which is, you know, to think of a any bird that is heavier than, than me, you have to go for some you know, creatures like ostriches. Well, you do say that these particular penguins weren't necessarily exactly like the penguins we'd be imagining, the ones that 
waddle. These ones had a more waddling gait, you say. They retained their inner toes, which later penguins lose. Their wings are looser and they don't yet have rigid flippers. So, you know, they are slightly different to what we're thinking of, but they are still penguins. Oh, they're absolutely recognisable as penguins. You know, they're still sort of walking flat-footed and um, their necks have a bit more of a curve to them than modern penguins are relatively sort of hunched over and short-necked. But these were still uh, underwater hunters with you know, long sort of javelin beaks, much much longer proportionally actually the beaks um, relative to, to, to modern penguins. And it, it's just part of a diversity of penguins which uh, no longer exists. Um, a, a lot of the uh, early penguins are these relatively large ones. I mean, most of them are larger than emperor penguins. But it's only emperor penguins that are left now in Antarctica. They are the sole remaining permanent animal inhabitant of the Antarctic land. It's, I guess, quite fitting that, you know, this is where they evolve. The earliest penguins, uh, I think, are from New Zealand. Uh, there are some that are uh, a, f- a few million years older than the um, than the Antarctic ones. But um, this is all part of the same biome at this time. So it's, this is the environment, this is the, their world. Thomas, I might skip past dinosaurs, or at least we'll acknowledge their presence because they are kind of special in and of themselves. Um, Stegosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus did not meet at all. There was 70 million years separating them. So I guess the point that you seem to be making and, and that I hadn't really caught on to is that there are so many millions upon millions of years between different types of dinosaurs even. And there's the Cretaceous period, the Jurassic period, the Triassic period in this kind of block um, of the Mesozoic era. And there isn't this just kind of whole all-encompassing dinosaur time I guess it's hard to get your mind around it as a human that there could be 70 million years between things that we conceive of as being, you know, largely similar or the same. Yeah, this is one of the motivations, I I suppose, for writing the book, really, because we do tend to um, think of the past in these sort of big monolithic chunks, right? So dinosaur times is all all lumped together. But of course, that was a period from, you know, the, the Triassic starts 250 million years ago and the Cretaceous ends 66 million years ago. So we're talking almost 200 million years of um, archosaur dominance, if not dinosaur dominance. But uh, yeah, the, the, the fact that, you know, Stegosaurus and, and, and T-Rex or indeed Diplodocus and T-Rex or Iguanodon and T-Rex, I mean, these are these are organisms that are separated from each other by more than T-Rex is separated from us in, in, in time. So... There have been tremendous changes uh, across these times. And this is why I wanted to look at each individual site as a whole and say, you know, what is here at this time altogether for certain, (laughs) rather than, um, you know, lumping too much uh, together. Because in terms of an an anachronism, right, if you think that what, if Stegosaurus is about about 130 million years ago, let's turn that to 130 years ago and go back to sort of 1890. Who's who's around in 1890? I don't know. It's the late Victorian period, whereas you know 66 years ago, what was that 1956? So we've got is Clement Attlee still prime minister? I don't know. But um, you know, it's it, we we are well into the, the current Queen of, of of the UK, right? So in terms of reigns. It's mixing up completely different, um, completely different periods. But also, you know, I think the, the the conception is always, well, history was kind of everything's in the sea. Then there's dinosaur times. Then there's the ice age, 
And so that already jump is jumping a good 65 million years. <laughs> so um, a lot happened in between there. And that's also partly the period that um, I have studied academically. So you know, there's a, a defensiveness maybe in, <laughs> in trying to get people to learn about the lesser known parts of Earth history. Yeah. And I know that you're from Scotland, or at least you grew up in Scotland, and it's one of my favourite places. And so you do take us to Scotland in the Devonian period 407 million years ago. So we are far, far, far back. Oh, yes. And one thing that certainly caught my eye was this discussion on fungi. But I'd, you know, I've only ever discussed fungi in how we currently talk about it, not in the Devonian period. So I wondered if you could explain what this part of Scotland was like in this time and also how was fungi, what was it like, um, you know, what characterised it and the forests at the time and take us back there if you don't mind. Well, the first thing that we need to do to take us back is to do, have a little bit of a, a geography um, <laughs> lesson. So for a long time leading up to this, the, the uh, Iapetus Ocean, as we call it, separated three main continental masses. So there's uh, Laurentia, which is uh, the precursor of North America. There was um, Baltica, which is uh, what we call the precursor to sort of, you know, Scandinavia and Western Russia, that kind of region of Europe. And Avalonia, which is sort of the, um, you know, the southern UK and Ireland and the low countries going down to sort of Portugal, Morocco, that kind of area. And over time, the Apatis Ocean closed as these uh, continents moved together. And uh, eventually they all collided in a sort of three-way collision, which produced this in, uh, extremely high mountain range. So as high as the Himalayas, but stretching from what is now Tennessee going up, what eventually became the Appalachian Mountains, through the hills of Donegal, the Scottish Highlands, then up into the Scandinavian peaks. And so the mountains that are there today are kind of an echo of this past. They're not the same mountains, but they're sort of built on the same continental routes. And Rhiney is sort of bang in the middle of this. So today it's uh, in Aberdeenshire, so oh, just yep. on, the, on, on the edge uh, of, uh, sort of northeastern Scotland, on the edge of the, uh, of the Cairngorms. But back in the Devonian, it was part of this mountain system, which, of course, you know, with all these continental collisions, there's quite an active volcanic system going on and so you end up with pools of groundwater being superheated and these mineral rich springs and the thing you have to think about as a sort of modern analog is Yellowstone National Park really right where you have um, all of these geysers and as the silicon rich water comes out of the geysers it spills out and the silicon precipitates out and and coats all of the living things around it so we get this incredible subcell level preservation of individual plants and animals in just a, a phenomenal detailed view of what was there you know when it gets flooded by this geyser water and some of the things that you can see are you know individual um, strands of you know fruiting bodies the, the mushrooms of the little fungi that are growing on these absolutely tiny plants so the, this is a time before plants were, uh, as we say, vascular, which means that they had, you know, the system of tubes for moving uh, waters and sugars and so on around the uh, around the plant. So more moss-like, and the way that these plants are able to have a foothold on land, this is a time when we sort of begin to develop roots, and they're doing that in collaboration with fungi. Fungi are masters of extracting 
nutrients from sort of non-organic sources like rocks. And so without these fungi there, the plants are unable to start to sort of really break down these rocks and to extract the minerals and to develop an ecosystem on land. We only have life on land because of this collaboration really between between fungi and plants. And of course, some of these fungi are, are, are parasitic and we have evidence of them invading the plants with their hyphae and, and, and the plants growing defense responses around them so that we know that this is not a you know a friendly relationship and you know, in some cases we do see mutual relationships and in others we see these sort of parasitic and digestive relationships but the sort of the the iconic organism of of this time is an organism called prototaxites and while all of this plant life it's it is like a moss forest it's very low centimeters tall probably up to about sort of a foot at most um, but prototaxites, some specimens in other parts of the world can reach up to eight or nine meters. So these tower over everything else. And well, what are they? They're sort of bollard shaped um, structures that appear from microscopic analysis and so on of their, of their tissues to have been at least partly fungal. And the reason I say partly fungal is because um, there's evidence from their surfaces that they were uh, interacting with photosynthesizing partners that were sort of trapping light and when this happens when you get this really tight interaction between a fungus and a um, and a photosynthesizer we call it a lichen so these are um, enormous lichens we believe when they were first discovered they were assumed to be trees and assumed to be conifers just because that's what people had found in you know slightly younger sediments and so they thought oh well the, the conifers are just a little bit older but then you know, evidence begins to accrue that there's something else and they people have come up with some pretty interesting hypotheses about what prototaxites is and, and certainly the current consensus is that they are um yeah a, a, a fungus perhaps a lichen and so that's um, how I've been describing them here uh, but really you know a lichen is almost the I guess almost the end point in collaboration right they're so tightly interacting with one another that one part cannot survive without the other and you know you can you can make the sort of farming analogy of is the fu- is the fungus farming these uh, photosynthesizers for food and offering them the protection of its little sheath that it covers them in and so on. the collaboration is what then drives life being able to find a foothold on land in the first place yeah no it's i mean it's shocking in my mind to think that a lichen could be that large sure so. i mean everything is all sort of crusters and or maybe hairy today lichens but um yes nothing nothing so grand no not like that and you do also say that um its close relatives today include a bewildering array of fungi, including Dutch elm disease, brewer's yeast, penicillium, and truffles. Most fungi and most of any given fungus are these thread-like hyphae, right? So what we actually see of a fungus tends to be uh, the just the fruiting body that emerges temporarily. So it's, uh, you know, fungi are, are, are extremely bizarre, I think, to us as animals, because they, I mean, they, they are in many ways sort of ecologically, we think of them more like plants, but they're more closely related to us than they are to plants. And, you know, they share some of the sort of same cellular features as we do. Um, and, and so it's just this entirely other way of living, which we don't think about enough, I think. No, we don't. Just finally, Thomas, let's go to Australia. (laughs) We're in the Ediacaran times 550 million years ago, and you're taking us to the Ediacara Hills in South Australia. When we think of ancient, we think of the Northern Territory. We think of Uluru, the big rock 
formations in that central part of Australia. Why are we here in South Australia of all places, which is kind of closer to um, Victoria where we are here in uh, Melbourne? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that um, a a lot of Australia is geologically extremely old. It's, um, I mean, a a lot of those sort of long parallel uh, red mountains in the centre or red hills in the centre are some of the oldest mountain ranges on the planet. They eroded sort of parts of those. And and in fact, when you get into North Australia, you find some of the oldest rocks on the planet and the oldest evidence of life. Australia is full of extremely ancient things. But, you know, complex ecosystems are actually relatively young. So um, South Australia (laughs) and the Flinders Range is, although it's extremely old, um, 550 million years in the Odiacan Hills, as far as Earth goes, it's still only a ninth of the way back to the formation of the Earth. The analogy I use uh, in the book is um, imagining that you're walking from Adelaide to Darwin along the road um, through Australia. And it's you know, so the distance in kilometres of at least one of the routes you could take is approximately the same number of uh, millions of years as life has existed on this planet and so if you were walking out of Adelaide by the time you're 550 kilometers out you're 550 million years back in time and there you are surrounded by these Ediacaran fossils this period is it's one of those periods of time that when people were first beginning to identify that there were fossils in this layer they were quite literally not believed it was seen to be you know the Cambrian is when complex life appears pre-Cambrian rocks have no fossils in them was the sort of conventional wisdom and a schoolgirl Tina Negus in in the UK found um, some fossils in Leicester and then she was just completely ignored by her teacher and said oh no you're being ridiculous they are not fossils those rocks are too old to have fossils and then later one uh, one of her classmates um, came along and he presented them to um, some local scientists who said oh no hang on actually that's really interesting and then of these turned up all over the place these are they're very strange organisms and part of the reason that they're not very well preserved is because they have no hard parts yet they are mostly only preserved by impression and in fact in the Ediacara hills what you have is imagine that there's, there's the seabed that the organism lives on and it's quite soft and it dies and it's sort of lying flat on the seabed it's covered by sediment and then it rots away. But then what happens is that because of the, the nature of the, the sand, of the rocks as it's, as it's lithifying, um, the sort of lower layer gets sort of sucked up into it. So what they're actually preserved as is sort of inverse impressions on the underside of rock layers in the Adiacra Hills. So it's, it's these sort of shadows of what was there. Mm. And in terms of you know what they look like, um, an analogy which didn't make it into the book because um, without being able to explain it in person, it's almost impossible to <laughs> go for is you know if you imagine like a writing quill that's in an ink pot, right? And then somehow this quill is inflatable, and so you like you blow it up like a pool toy, and it's got this this sort of veined structure, mm. but it's um, you know three dimension. It's it's puffed up. That's what several of these things look like. They have a hold fast, so rather like um, seaweed does, for example, today. They're attached to the bottom, they're hanging on and they're swaying in the current. But at the time that I was doing my undergraduate, what, 10, 15 years ago, um, it was generally talked about them, so, and we just don't know what they are. We just have no idea. Are they animals? They might be. Are they um, related to another living kingdom of life, maybe? Or maybe they're something else entirely. 
And consensus seems to be um, growing that several of these are, in fact, animals. So uh, one of these organisms called Dickinsonia, which looks, I mean, it's sort of round and flat in shape, and it seems to have moved around. Uh, it, it sort of looks like it's got all of these segments that grow out of one side and sort of compress around. It's a very bizarre looking organism. Um, but there's chemical evidence of cholesteroids there, and the cholesteroids are, are chemicals which are only made by animals. Um, so there's you know growing evidence from sort of a, a range of different sources that these are some of the earliest animals. But it's a time before predation properly existed. It's a, a, an extremely different world. Of course, everything on land is entirely bare. Yeah, it's. It, it's sort of eerie and almost alien, I think, the, the Ediacaran world compared with the modern day. And yet that's where ecosystems began to uh, sort of become the uh, complex interacting entities that we see and have seen through the course of the book, through the course of the last half billion years. Thomas, thank you for taking us through this. And I guess I just wanted to finish on the notes that you do, which is around what you hoped this book might open our minds too, but also its relevance to the current day. And obviously one clear thing that springs to mind from an Australian perspective, but also a global perspective is climate change, especially given the floods we've had recently and the catastrophic bushfires. Could you share with us your concluding thoughts and especially that those kind of links that you're making between ecosystems, ecology and climate and um, these threats that we are currently facing? So paleontology is one of those disciplines which it sort of acts as the only laboratory that we have for studying what happens when climates change. Right? We can't build a second earth and uh, test our hypotheses in, a, in that sort of setting. So we can look back at all of the past earths that have existed and see what possible futures might come about when we get periods of, uh, of dramatic change. Um, and really, the the lesson that I think we can take from it is one that yes, okay, life is life is persistent, but the you know when ecosystems are fragile, when you get these big turnovers, you know uh, everything does change, and this is the world that we have evolved in. We are part of a very a very long sort of chain of existence that has been going for five hundred and fifty million years and will continue to regardless, but. Will it be the world that sort of includes us in it? There is nothing intrinsic about our presence on Earth. Now, that can seem a bit of a downer, and but I don't think it necessarily has to be, because I think we can then look at that and say, OK, well, we know that now, so we've got to act upon it. I take a hopeful view that these are problems that we have the ability to solve. We have um, the technology to solve. What we have lacked is the sort of political cohesion and, and agreement and and, uh, and that really comes from actually being active about it it's not it's no good passively hoping if you sit there and uh, say oh well it's it's too late now then it's just as bad as denying that there's a problem in the first place um so we need to take that active hope and actually um say we can solve this and we will do our darndest to do it yeah it's one of those situations where, yeah, every every day, every every week that we don't act, then more is lost. But there is still always more to lose, and so, and so the sooner that we do act, we will be able to save as much as we can. There, it's it's not all or nothing. Yeah, 
Well, it's a very, very excellent perspective to have, and I appreciate your time uh, that you're so generously giving us at a very late hour in the UK. And um, I hope people can pick up your book, which, as I said, is very detailed, and uh, the end notes certainly attest to that, as well as a great amount of um, creative work in taking us back and, I guess, letting us time travel a bit. So thank you so much, Thomas, for joining me. And uh, I hope they can check out this book, Other Lands, A World in the Making, which is by yourself, Thomas Halliday, and out through Alan Lane. All the best with the rest of your work as a paleobiologist. I'm sure there'll be much more from you. Thank you very much. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.